Disney fans, looking for the latest Disney news? And interviews with some of Disney's biggest stars? Have we got the podcast for you. Welcome to D23 Inside Disney. I'm Tony from Good Morning America. I'm Jeffrey from D23. And I'm Sherry from Oh My Disney. And together we're taking you Inside Disney. Howdy, y'all. What's going on? Hey. Hello. Hey, howdy, hey. Another week with my best friends. Yay. Aww. Who, who? And where are they? Well, yeah, ha- what What are friends? Well, for our <laughs> listeners, we can see each other. So that's that's part of our weekly meet. But that is true. Uh, what did everyone do this last week? Well, okay, my, my family was visiting for the first time in over a year. It was very exciting, which means my brother was in town, which means we watched our favorite movie growing up, The Parent Trap. 1998 starring oh, Lindsay Lohan times classic. two classic classic I yes. hadn't seen it in a long time but rest assured listeners that I still know every single line of dialogue <laughs> I'm not exaggerating <laughs> every single line of dialogue the secret handshake we also my brother and I know the whole film score like before a certain song started my brother and I would start like humming <laughs> I'm sure it's a real pleasure for anyone watching with us like my poor fiance was just sitting there silently like (laughs) (laughs) but wow it's it's an experience that is awesome I love that what about you guys I mean I am just caught up now on Falcon and Winter Soldier I love that show so much and coming up on the show, you do not want to miss it. We have the director of every single episode, Kari Skogland, who Ooh. is amazing and gave away very little, but a little. So, and it's actually <laughs> really fun stuff about just the making of the whole show and the series. Also, wanted to give a shout out to Randy Joe on Twitter, who wrote to Tony and me a few weeks ago. And she let us know she binged every single episode of the pod in like <gasps> a week. And wow. I, I've got a super fan. I'm impressed. I'm a fan. Yeah, exactly. So, hey, Randy Joe, thank you for doing that. If others of you have done that, write to me and Tony on the Twitter and let us know which ones you like the most. We, we'd say write to Sherry on the Twitter, but she's not on the Twitter. Yes, that's true. You could send me a carrier pigeon. <laughs> there you go. And Tony, what about you? So as we know, Oscar Sunday is fast approaching. I finally got a chance to watch Nomadland on Hulu. It's such a beautiful film. It's literally my pick for best picture. Obviously a little biased, but it's so good and just beautifully made. Well, let's kick things off with some news from overseas. A concept model was revealed for Tokyo Disney Sea's newest themed port. It is called Fantasy Springs and it's opening at the park in 2023, which is like right around the corner. So it was Christmas for you. Yes, I, many Christmases between now and then. <laughs> I, I am so excited. I love that park so much. Oh, I can't wait to go. So it's going to be the eighth themed port and the largest ever since the park's opening. I'm super jazzed about this. Amazing. And yeah. I mean, anything named Fantasy Springs, like sign me up, get me Absolutely. there. So here's some details about the port. It's going to include a Disney luxury deluxe hotel and three separate areas that are each dedicated to a different film. There will be a frozen area, a tangled area, and a Peter Pan area. I know what you're wondering. Will there be attractions? Yes. Will there be restaurants? Of course. Will there be immersive spaces? Absolutely. (laughs) Check it all out. There are videos on d23.com and also on the Disney Parks YouTube page. 
the concept model is incredible. It's 1 50th of the actual size of the porch. So it is teeny tiny and holds tons of magic. So check it out. The details on it were great. You, you get Rapunzel in our tower. It's very, very cool. Yes. That's awesome. Well, the official trailer debuted for Disney's Launchpad coming to Disney Plus on May 28th. Did the two of you get to see this trailer? Yeah. The trailer I'm, looks I did, amazing. yeah. Oh it's my God. incredible. I'm fully obsessed. It gave me all the feels. Mm -hmm. Disney's Launchpad is a collection of live action short films from a new generation of dynamic storytellers. The goal of Launchpad is to diversify the types of stories being told and they're all from filmmakers from underrepresented backgrounds. So all the filmmakers for season one were selected out of more than 1,100 applicants and submissions for the second season of Disney's launch had will be accepted so soon, beginning May 10th. And you can get more deets on Launchpad and season two, season one, all of it at launchpad.disney.com. So that's coming on May 28th. I cannot wait to watch those. They look great. Mm -hmm. Something else coming. It's coming next year, but we're about to get a good preview of it. The Disney Wish. You guys know me. You know me and my cruise ships. Oh. Well, and Sherry and I are on this campaign. Yes. yes. D23 inside Disney at sea. I'm please. super in. We're going to put it out there in the universe. Well, Once Upon a Disney Wish is going to reveal some new exciting details. And I may have heard about some of them. So people are definitely going to want to tune in. It, the ship is going to be just beyond, I think, what anyone's expecting. So you can tune into the Parks blog. There's going to be a 30-minute virtual presentation on April 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern time. I'm ready to book. I'm ready to book now. Very exciting. <laughs> and then a little bit further away, in fact, in the galaxy far, far away, though coming to our galaxy is a new book, The Art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, coming out on April 27th. And it's Ooh. gorgeous. I got to see some of the pages. It is full of concept artwork, sketches, blueprints, photographs. It really documenting every step of Imagineering and Lucasfilm's creative process in designing and creating Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And our pal, Scott Trowbridge, who was on the podcast last year from Imagineering, uh, wrote the foreword. And actually, Amy Ratcliffe, who I know she's a fabulous writer and she's a StarWars.com contributor, she wrote the book. So again, coming out mm. April 27th. Yay! Well, you guys, we cannot get through this week's news segment without absolutely gushing over the latest drop from Marvel, Shang-Chi mm. and the Legend of the Ten Rings. We got yes. a trailer. We got a poster. So good. So, so good. So the actor who plays the title character Shang-Chi, Simu Liu, he debuted the poster on his social, which is at Simu Liu, if you don't follow him yet. Follow and also, him. it was his birthday, wasn't it? Yes! What a treat! I mean, talk about a good present. Sorry. <laughs> he gifted us a present. So following the poster debut, the action-packed teaser trailer was released, and you can check it out on Marvel Entertainment's YouTube page. Guys, it looks incredible. I cannot wait for this movie. In the film, he must confront the past that he thought he left behind when he is drawn into the web of the mysterious Ten Rings organization. Aquafina is also in it. Love her. So check it out. It's in theaters September 3rd, 2021. Love Aquafina. I yeah. actually posted it because I thought it was funny. And Tony, I think you liked it. With Marvel now, she's already got a Walt Disney Animation Studios voice with Raya. Mm -hmm. She's got a Disney live action character with Scuttle. 
now she's in Marvel. I mean, she just really needs Pixar and yes. she needs to become a Jedi. And then she is officially like, I feel like on her route to being a Disney legend. I'm Absolutely. super in on that. Fully support that. And when I tell you I screamed when I saw her in the trailer. Yes. Oh, <laughs> so good. Well, over at National Geographic, Nat Geo's race to the center of the earth is coming to Disney Plus in May. Mm. What is this about, you ask? Let me tell you. So Race to the Center of the Earth pits four teams of three against one another in a sprint across the globe for, get this, you guys, a $1 million prize. Ooh. $1 million. So each group will start from a different corner of the earth racing across the globe. You know, the usual. As one does. As one does. (laughs) And all episodes of the seven-part series will land all at the same time on Disney+. Plus. Friday, May 14th. Ready to binge. Love it. And speaking of binging. Oh, what a great intro. We all know what time it is. Um, It's time um, for five fantastic things to watch this weekend. Courtesy ah. of our friends at D23, the official Disney fan club. For complete details, visit D23.com. Jeffrey, what's up first? Well, Jeffrey, the finale (laughs) of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier Coming up Friday, April 23rd, we're about to hear more from the It's Incredible director, Kari Skogland. So edge of my couch. I feel like I say that a lot, but very, very excited coming to Disney+. Plus. Also coming to Disney+, Plus on Friday, are the first three seasons of Liv and Maddie. Dove Cameron back playing two roles. I mean, talk about Parent Trap, going back to what you were chatting about earlier, Sherry. Heck yeah. She plays uh, two characters, so... Also, my niece is obsessed with that show. So Dylan will have a very busy weekend catching up on all three seasons. (laughs) Well, on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, FX has the Academy Awards movies. It's on FX. So prepare for Hollywood's biggest night by reliving some of the biggest hits of the Academy's past. Pop that corn. Dim those lights. Get ready to binge to stay on your couch all weekend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pop that corn it's my favorite yes. i know I'm, I, that's my new favorite line pop that corn I well continue it. popping that corn because also on saturday and sunday freeform is doing an oscar fun day movie weekend i'm just gonna what? real quick rapid fire some of my faves lilo and stitch finding nemo up ratatouille moana mary poppins coco there's a lot more but i'm out of breath i want to watch all of those <laughs> Well, that's all in preparation for... Yes, so for real, pop that corn, because the envelope, please. (laughs) The 93rd Oscars will be this Sunday. It's here, Oscars Sunday, live on ABC. Um, Starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. My colleagues at ABC here are hard at work at producing some of the red red carpet pre-shows as well happening all afternoon on ABC. So, so much to look forward to. What a big weekend. And my shameless plug for our GMA after party Monday morning, Ooh, live from Times Square on all over the place. So a lot to look forward to. Break out the mimosas. Pop that corn. <laughs> <laughs> all right, on to our guest. We need to start by saying if you have not watched episodes one through five of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, please save this episode until you have, because we're going all in on spoilers on today's interview. This director is incredible. She has kept us on the edge of our sofas for the past six weeks, directing every episode of Marvel Studios' The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. She's smart, she's talented, and she's Canadian, which instantly makes her nicer than me. Please welcome to the show, Kari Skoglund. Woohoo! 
Hello, hello, hello. Nice to be here. So first question, before you started directing on the series, did you watch all the Marvel films? In what order did you watch them in? And did you have the favorite? No, I had actually, um, because I had been talking to um, the gang on some earlier projects and had been introduced to the whole Marvel world. I mean, I was a fan anyway from before that, but I had done a deeper dive some years before. But which is my favorite? That's a toughie. Because I guess Winter Soldier, but I, but I really like Captain America. I, I don't know. I, I can't say I had a favorite. You know, I drew from all of them, right? And I, I'll also, you look at them as a fan, and then you look at them for research and you're seeing different things, you know? Mm. And so I have to say, uh, I mean, some of the action sequences, I was gobsmacked. And then Endgame came and uh, Malcolm and I went to the um, premiere of that. And we looked at each, as the, as the lights went up, we looked at each other because we were doing the sequel. <laughs> and we just looked at each other and went, oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get into that nitty gritty spoiler territory. Okay, the moment where John kills the Flag Smasher with the shield, and then at the start of episode five. Ooh, okay, so we normally don't see blood in Marvel. Can you talk about why it was so important to have that moment and the moments after with the blood still fresh? We also no don't normally don't talk about blood on the podcast, so this is a first for all of us. I know. <laughs> New terrain. Yes. And, and there was a lot of discussion of, of too much, too little. You know, uh, if you look at the body of my work, I am no a stranger to blood and I'm probably uh, very gruesome at my, you know, I've got some, some uh, uh, weird little thing in me that goes, more blood, I'm more. Make it gruesome, make it horrible. It was really important for everybody because we had been talking about this shield, this iconic white symbol throughout, that's the, the core of the conversation that we're having. What does it represent? What is it meant to represent? Where has it gone offside? What is a hero? What is a hero today versus when that was all imagined, you know, some 80 years ago? And these were some very hard conversations to be having. But it also is about the destruction of perhaps what the ideal was and where it has come. And so how do you completely... I want to say destroy, and, and I, I, it's not really destroy, it's reimagine, but through taking it to its worst. And so using it as an instrument of destruction in a way that we've never seen. It had always been an instrument of defense. So for us to take it and abuse it like that, and because it is a metaphor for the American flag, of course, this resonates. And so it looked at a history and a sense of being in a modern state of, you know, world geopolitics and so on, and where we sit within it. So it was a heavy moment and it needed to sit. But, you know, because of the way Marvel loves to tell stories, which is, you know, at many, many layers, on its surface, it's one thing. And then when you dig in and you peel back the onion, there's, you know, five and six other, there's meat on the bone. And so the blood of it was critical for us to say, blood was spilled blood is spilled and that can't continue and that's why you know Bucky says we're gonna to have to take the shield from him and Sam says we don't need any more people getting hurt you're out of your mind 
and Sam being the conciliatory, the, the one who you know talks people off the ledge. With regards to the hero of it and the, the discussion behind what is a hero today, uh, that really uh, very, very important for all of us to decode what it was, what was born of an anti-fascist ideal that was a warrior soldier. And then now today, it's a first responder and it's a front frontline worker. And so these are very two different, you know, coming at it from a very different place. And so it needed to be updated. It needed to be looked at and taken out and kind of destroyed and then rebuilt. And all of this to say, our pal John Walker seems to have completely lost it right now. He's someone who's been through many battles, obviously, and probably has lost many friends. But I would love to hear from you. What makes this moment for him so different? I know people have had very uh, emotional responses to him, which I think is fantastic that everyone's so engaged in the who, what, and why of it. But he wants to be a good Captain America. I think that's the most important thing. He's earnest about his position. And I think he really came into it not only honored, but wanting to step up into the person that he had hoped he could be. And in this moment, as it's been taken from him in little tiny bits, and so he took the serum. And because he, you know, if you remember uh, when the Duramelage came after him, and he said they weren't even super soldiers and he was destroyed. So even right there, he didn't have the essence, the internal good soul. He didn't have the DNA to be a good Captain America. So when he uses this instrument as a force of violence, his ability to be Captain America is destroyed at the same time. So that white ideal, what blonde, blue-eyed ideal is completely shattered. And in part because he does not have what it takes. On a somewhat lighter note. <laughs> <laughs> I, I brought us into this mess by asking about blood. So let's yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I audibly gasped when Julia Louis-Dreyfus appeared. I oh. could not handle it. Now in the comics, her character, Contessa Valentino Allegra de Fontaine, I feel like I have to say it like that every time. Yes, don't say it. <laughs> you can call me Val, but only don't call me Val. Just say it. Yeah, just think. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it, that character has been reimagined in several ways, sometimes as a good S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, sometimes as Madame Hydra. So what can you tell us going into the finale about her? Obviously, I can tell you nothing. Okay. So, <laughs> she is a character right now who we are left with the mystery of who she's going to be. And I think we will be excited about who she might be. And we will, you know, <laughs> go down a road that opens doors. So we'll see how you guys respond. Hmm. Good answer. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are going to replay that over and over and over again <laughs> and try and figure something out. Exactly. But how did you? Uh, <laughs> but you know, she was so fun, and it's terrific. The way Marvel works is that they draw from the comics, but we don't duplicate them. You know, so the characters and the actors are able to do a certain amount of interpretation and really own the character. And Julia was terrific at because you know, as part of helping her imagine this character, you know, where she sat, how quirky she is, and how well the Julia magic touch on it was exciting to see and, and to be a part of. Wow. How did you come to cast her? 
I would love to say it was my idea, but it was not. It was Kevin's, absolutely Kevin Feige. And, you know, that's the brilliance of the man. And when she said yes, we got the call, uh, she had said yes. We were all just absolutely overjoyed with what that could mean for the character and for the show. Wow. I love it. Well, I would love to switch gears real quick. And I need to pick your brain about Sharon Carter. (laughs) She's more twisty than Space Mountain, I feel. We just found out she broke the guy out of jail who Sam pretty much put into jail in the first episode. Now that guy is providing arms to the Flag Smashers. Kari, please tell me, we need a, a Sharon Carter update from you. What's what's happening here? Well, Sharon is off-grid, right? So she's been living in Madripoor, and she has been, she's a survivor. What I love about her is, you know, she's willing to do what it takes, but she had to go off-grid because she was wanted by the various policing bodies. So she goes and ends up in Madripoor, and she's selling stolen art and has a great nightclub and is connected with the underbelly. So the way the crazy world goes, Sam and Bucky, particularly Sam reaches out, but they need her. And so she's kind of finally able to perhaps, you know, get back some of what she's had to give up as a a result of the the history that she went through with them all. That's the update there and more to come. So, Emily, oh my God, did she work hard on those action sequences? Were they not fantastic? Oh, amazing. Amazing. I mean, it's all amazing. Every episode, I'm like constantly (laughs) in awe of things that are happening that I did not expect to happen. Well, we had a lot of fun imagining that. So how that sort of came about was we were in the writer's room and they all, you know, are going to go meet Dr. Nagel. I'm thinking, okay, so they're going to be in a lab. And there's how many characters in the room? There's going to be Bucky, Sam, Dr. Nagel, Zemo, and Sharon. That's a lot of people in the little tiny lab. I said, wouldn't it be more fun if, you know, she's out there and she's like, you know, dialing in here and there. And like, Guys, hurry it up. I'm, I'm dying out here. And everybody <laughs> loved the idea. So that's how that was born. So that I, truthfully, so that I didn't have too many characters in one room. <laughs> what a great solution i mean so, uh, so, uh, yeah. necessity is the mother of invention exactly, exactly. <laughs> one of the things i thought has been done so brilliantly on the show is that at the beginning and i very intentionally i think it we were supposed to think that sam was going to take up the mantle of captain america but his journey to accepting that role has been a major part of the story and a big arc can you talk about the importance of playing that out for him to take up the shield was something that, and Bucky says it, I don't think we could possibly have known what it meant for a black man to pick up that shield. And he apologizes. So right at the beginning, when he gives it up and says it was that man, that shield belongs to that man, which was a testimony to the legacy of it. And really for him to take it up and racially charged America, was huge, not just for him, but for his community and what that meant and what was he endorsing. And he had to think about it. And he had, at that point, thought about it and rejected it and said, no, it's got to be something new. That icon is gone. So through the show, we wanted to take into account everybody's opinion of the shield and what it meant to them. Because what it means to Bucky is very different from what it meant to Sam. And we go into that and he says, 
it was a part of me. It was sort of a part of my history. And I'm having trouble giving that up. That same theme is part of what the GRC is going through. The GRC wants to turn the clock back to pre-blip because that's safe. So it's important for everybody to weigh in on what the shield means, including Carly. So everybody had to have a perspective so that we got a real sense of the three-dimensional space within that that shield sits in. Everybody's got their own heartfelt connection. And then we hear Sam's final, you know, through Isaiah. You know, he says, no self-respecting Black man would ever pick that up. And that, you know, is right. When we think about it, as we've seen, as we've gone through it, and we go, I think he's right. Why would you pick it up? And then we put blood on it. So Sam is really carrying the weight of change. And I think that is the extraordinary shield story that we are going to, uh, you know, conclude at the end of Sticks, whether he does or doesn't decide to, to take up that mantle. As you're talking about it, there are so many pivotal moments for Sam in episode five, as you mentioned, hearing Isaiah's story. What do you think was the one moment where it all clicked into place that he really needed to own the shield? Carly and he have a very special relationship. Back to the concept of what it's a hero, you know, a first responder or, or a warrior. We've traditionally seen the hero go out and, you know, beat the crap out of the bad guy and kill them or, or save the world that way. Sam consistently right now, you know, keeps trying to conciliate. When they take the shield from Walker, he at least tries, you know, it's Walker who's the aggressor. So he's coming at everything from a different perspective. And I think part of his thoughtfulness is I'm not sure he thinks the shield is going to support that. So even when he picks up the shield, if he does, because we don't know that yet, he opens the case at the end of five, but it's going to be from a new and completely different mental space because he's going to use it differently. At the end of four, and we put blood on the shield, and now it is, and he wipes it off in that moment because at some level he's still loving what that shield could represent and the potential of the shield. And so that's probably the seminal moment. And then when he's talking to his sister, for me, I think that was a critical it's not that she's giving him permission so much, but that she's saying, you know, you are who you are. Don't let Isaiah tell you who you are. And I think in that moment, from an emotional place, he makes a decision about his next steps. So it's a quiet moment. I love their relationship, the, the, the sibling relationship. I know Adapero is just lovely. And it's such a, you know, she just grounded it. And um, and it was important to me and her that Sarah has a lot of moxie. You know, she's not letting him, you know, like an older brother, you know, tell her what to do when he comes back and he gets it kind of wrong. And she goes along with it. And then what I love is then she switches gears and they won't give up their legacy. And I think that is also an important message. So I'm curious to know about your technique for shooting Sam and Bucky. Can you tell us about the, the differences between camera placements and the shooting style. Take us behind the lens a little bit, if you could. First of all, I wanted to give the, the series a signature look. 
but it still had to sit in the Marvel world because we were making a Marvel movie, a six hour Marvel movie. In the beginning, you'll see, like particularly with Bucky in the psychiatrist scene, you know, I have very unique a- angles and, and wanted to be really inside his head. So the goal was to be experiential. So we really felt the character. In that case, it was very, you know, he's in his own prison and he's unable to get past himself. So that was what that was all about, to try and make it a little bit visually evocative and support what he is going through. But Sam, by contrast, was a lot more handheld and very free and big open space. And because that was his world, he's in a big world, whereas Bucky's, you know, locked himself in a closet, basically, at this point. Both of them are trying to figure out their relevance going forward. So as we go through the show, I tried to bring that sort of constant experience. Where were we in whose perspective in each scene? So I also used a lot of... um, focal plane work where, you know, it might be a close focus, even though it's a big wide shot, we're looking, we're, and that puts you inside the character, whichever character we wanted to be in. And what I also like to do is really empower, this sounds so funny, the focus puller, you know, cause it's a dance, right? You have got one guy who's on the camera, another person who's pulling focus as the camera moves around. And then there's a whole host of other people who are controlling all the, the different digital aspects to everything. So, because I wanted in certain scenes to be quite freeform and eliminate edits. That was my thing. I wanted not to feel like I call it ping pong editing, where you go bing, 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 back and forth, you know, (laughs) between conversation. So I wanted the camera to take us there. So that meant to the, to the um, operator and we had amazing operators. uh, I would say, okay, you go wherever you, as the conversation unfolds, particularly with Bucky and Sam, because they often ad libbed. And so you wanted to kind of go with it. I said, you be the, you know, the director of focus and you decide where you're interested back and forth with where we are in the, in the scene, whose perspective. So we would do several takes that were very free form in order to just feel like we were floating through the moment, I guess is the best way to put it. And for the most part, that worked really well. I mean, I always backed it up with sort of more traditional coverage so that we could go there if we needed to. But generally speaking, we ended up with an awful lot of that kind of work, which just felt a little bit more immersive. Wow. And I think you nailed it because it's truly an experience and I feel like I'm literally in the room with them. So to hear you describe all that was awesome. That's great. Well, that was the intentions for sure. So I'm thrilled that it worked. You know, the other thing that we did, which I think also helps just the sort of the energy of the characters is they did a lot of improv and we really encouraged that. Sebastian and, and Anthony are friends off screen. And we looked at a lot of their off screen, like their interviews and stuff, you know, through the various movies that they've been um, uh, on press tours with and just watched the banter and watched the ease with which and who, who was what and wrote into that so that we were capturing the, the real characters, you know, the real guys as much as we possibly could so that we were, you know, setting the stage where they could shine and be who they are. Sure enough, you know, every day they came in and just nailed it. And it was a lot of fun to, to be part of because you could be, you know, behind the monitors, I, there I am doing my thing. And every day, you know, you're leaning forward because you have no idea what's going to come out of their mouths. And, <laughs> you know, at the monitors, covering my mouth so I don't pollute it with my laughing. I think for all of us, we felt it was a very special project as we went 
as we kept going and and through the pandemic of it all, and we realized we were telling a very, very, not that we ever didn't think we were, because the story of racism in America needs to be told and told again. So that's always going to be a current story until it's a, no longer a story. And let's hope that's soon. As the world was changing so quickly and things were happening, not just racially, but politically, we did feel the relevance of the story we were telling more and more. And so it was very important that we got it right, uh, which was also all of our goals. So in the lighthearted side to it is all this gravitas underneath. Mm, Wow. Yeah. Powerful story for the MCU and our universe. Mm. So outside of episode six, what has been your favorite scene to film? It sounds like it was just fun to hear the two of them riff off each other and banter, but do you have a favorite scene? I guess... I would say it changes per day. And if I see an episode, I have a new favorite scene. But one of my favorite scenes would have been uh, in the police station with the psychiatrist, because that was one of the first where the tone and the characters really galvanized. It gave us the promise of everything that the show was going to be as they, they're so vulnerable with each other. The, the swing from comedy to the drama you know, like a switch. And that's just marvelous performances. We came away from that scene feeling very accomplished that we had, you know, for the first time, I, it was early on in the, in the, um, in our shooting that we had really, because we were all nervous of that scene, funny enough, or I was anyway, I think the guys were a bit too, because it, it did need to, you know, be the heartbeat of the rest of the series. Mm. And so there was a lot of pressure on it. And we came in and, and they, you know, we found it and it wasn't as written. That was very much a, one of the ad lib scenes. We had basics, but they brought a lot to that party. And shout out to Amy Aquino, who I think, oh, like it makes any, I love her so much. She could be my therapist any day. I know. Well, that, that was the other thing. When in the writer's room, when we were talking about this whole therapy idea and, and we were all being very reverent about, you know, the therapist and what they were going to say. And then I said, well, what if it, they're a really bad therapist? And it's through their bad therapy that they actually, you know, actually do good. So that was the 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 genesis of of her being kind of a trippy, like just bad therapist, you know, (laughs) on his uh, whatever it was he was uh, where he was going sideways. (laughs) He says, "You're a terrible shrink." Yeah, well. Well, I love that you describe that scene as your pick because that's the scene that I had been most looking forward to after all the trailers were released before the season. So that's awesome. Mm. But a lot of times, Kari, directors have a hand uh, in casting their leading actors. Obviously, many of the cast were already part of the MCU. I'd love to know what your first impressions were of meeting everyone. Oh, it was great. I mean, we I met Wyatt through the casting process, obviously the guys, funny enough, I met them at the premiere of Endgame. So that was kind of a great way to meet them. And Anthony was there with his kids and Sebastian was there. Uh, and I was there with my daughter and it was, you know, in the, in a huge venue, I think at the Staples Center or something. I mean, it was like a crazy huge 3,000. It was at the, yeah, it was at the conventions at the LA Convention Center, right? Oh, at LA, Staples. Very, yeah. uh, it was a very intimate space. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, remember premieres? <laughs> yeah, I, I went up and introduced myself to everybody. And Paul Rudd's an old friend of mine, and he was there. And so it felt very, very friendly. I was tapping, you know, with Sebastian on the shoulder, going, um, hello. And he's wondering, who the heck is she? 
And I said, oh, I wouldn't be, you know, doing it. Oh, so it was, so we broke the ice in a very, you know, lovely space. Then when we all met up in Atlanta for the first time, we sat down and did table reads and just talked about the characters and talked about, and we just really enjoyed a social time together to get to know each other. Because one of the most important relationships or, or what I strive for is trust. It's got to be a trusting relationship between an actor and a director, because otherwise everyone feels too uptight about the trust is you can make a mistake and it won't matter. If you're not experimenting, like there's no mistakes, basically. If you're not experimenting, if you're not trying different things, if you're not on a path that is every, everything you do will lead to something else. You want to have an environment that is that friendly and, you know, allows people to, to do whatever it is they want to do and then cherry pick some of the best of the best and then hone it in from there. Particularly in this case, because we were discovering these characters. We'd only met them in little snippets by comparison to what we were suddenly doing. So we were going home with Sam. We were going home with Bucky and seeing them in a whole new way. And this was a bit, I think, as exhilarating as it was for everybody. It probably was also kind of terrifying, because particularly for Sebastian, because the Winter Soldier had been such a, you know, in such a box. And now we were seeing this vulnerable character who was trying to figure out, you know, the why of his existence into, you know, his future. Wow, that's, you know, that's a big shift for, and he built that character. So that was really exciting to be part of watching him and, and coming in every day with his idea, new and interesting ideas. Very thoughtful actor. Wow. Well, Kari, it has been such a delight talking to you. Dare I say, marvelous. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was embarrassing. <laughs> anyway, we end every interview by asking our guests the same question. What is your favorite Disney memory? Well, of course, I'm going to say the Falcon and Winter Soldier. I mean, it was my most favorite of all favorites. Second favorite. Okay, second favorite. <laughs> Seeing Ryan Gosling as a musketeer. Oh, hmm. ah, that's a good, good one. one. Yeah, you guys didn't know that, did you? <laughs> oh, and Carrie Russell. Oh, please. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan <laughs> of, of MCC. I, 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 okay, I'm going to tell you my favorite moment was actually, and it is related to Ultimate Soldier. And I think when I walked into the Marvel office and saw those, the costumes and the, and the legacy, and then I went into the Disney, there's a little Disney museum. In the there. archives is right there in the, in the lobby of the Frank Tree Walls building, yeah. I think that it blew my mind that I was there and that this was real and that these costumes were real. And then the other moment I loved every day walking past in the Frank G. Wells building, there's a plaque outside and it says, humility is the final achievement. Mm. And that to me was, sums up Disney. Mm. Amazing. Thank you, Kari. This has been fantastic. We are obsessed with the show. We are so happy to have had you here. Congratulations and thank you. Well, thank you guys. And I, you know, I'm thrilled it's landing as well as it, it's landing on behalf of the entire team. We're all super proud of it. And I'm super thrilled to have been asked to join this party. And um, I sure hope it continues. Guys, I, I may be staying up like till midnight just to watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm so excited. I, yeah. 
Well, okay. I need to watch from the beginning now with all of this that Kari has shared with us, all this insight and kind of just yeah. restart the whole season. Yeah. It does give you a whole new appreciation for the way, especially the way she stopped things and stuff like that. I totally mm-hmm. love that. Well, thanks again for listening to D23 Inside Disney. Don't forget to like and share this episode wherever you listen. And if you want to chat with us, like our good pal Randy Joe, just hashtag D23 Inside Disney. And for all the latest Disney info, check out D23.com. We'll be back next week with more Disney news and a fantastic guest on an all-new episode of D23 Inside Inside Disney. Disney.